We are kicking off a new message series called Nine Items or Less, okay? You guys know what I'm talking about. You go to the grocery store, there's the 10 items or less aisle, and there's always that one guy who walks up like he's never been in a grocery store before, and he has like 75 items, and he starts piling onto the conveyor belt, and there's like... There's no room for him, and he's like, I don't know what I do with all the extra ones. And everyone there is put in a really awkward position of going like, um, sir, 10 items or less, right? Well, we're playing off that idea, nine items or less, going with the grocery store theme. And the reason we're doing that is because there are nine fruits or fruit of the Holy Spirit that are mentioned in Galatians 5. And uh, we're going to have this basket here as a metaphor. I want you to imagine that this uh, little basket here, this cart, uh, uh, is your life. And what we're going to see over the next 10 weeks is there are really nine essential characteristics that God wants for you to have in your life. And the cart of your life, as you're filling it up and you're going, man, what should I put inside this cart? Well, the Bible says there are these nine things, these things called the fruit of the Spirit. Each week, we're going to take out one of the fruit and we're going to examine it and meditate on it and see what God has for us. And so I hope you guys will be with us for most or all of that. This week, what I'm going to do is just provide an overview of the basket, just an overview of the fruit uh, as we look at a 30,000-foot level. And to begin, let me uh, talk to you guys about Venmo. Uh, anybody in here use Venmo? Okay, right, right, okay. Anybody in here like, no, I'm more of a Zelle person? We use Zelle, okay, we got that. Okay, all the engineers are like, it's more secure, Doug. Um, so I recently got into Venmo, and, uh, you know, I... I'm still kind of older. I use cash, uh, but we'll go for Starbucks runs or whatever, and Britt will just be like, hey, I'll Venmo you. Like, just pay for it, and I'll Venmo you. And I'm like, okay, and then I get the little text message, hey, you have $9 from Starbucks because Britt bought one drink, right? Uh, just kidding, Britt. I love you. Uh, but, right, be, but that's the whole way that it works now. Everybody Venmos. We have ba- babysitters who come watch our kids, and I'm like, hey, I have cash for you. And they're like, ugh, cash. No, just Venmo me. Uh, so I've had to get on this and learn it, whatever. I'm not too... Um, I'm not an expert at Venmo. That's what I want to say. I'm still learning it. I, I, I kind of know the basics of it, but I'm by no means an expert. I feel like many of the people in the room here, you guys are probably experts at Venmo. Uh, and this is really important for this reason. Uh, this past week, uh, my wife and I went and stayed at one of our friend's houses uh, who has a really nice house kind of in the South Florida area. Uh, we just did a little getaway with our kids and just, you know, beach time and that kind of stuff. Uh, right before the semester starts, and uh, there's like a cleaning fee associated with it, like an Airbnb type situation. So he says, just send me a check for the cleaning fee, and it's about 200 bucks for the cleaning fee, right? He says, I said, so I text him, hey, do you want check, or do you want something else? He said, hey, just Venmo me. And I go, okay, what's your username? And he sends me his username, Tom whatever. And I'm like, cool, this is you? He said, yep. So I get on Venmo, I find that, type in the username, send $200 off, there we go, Right? Well, I text him a few minutes later, or, you know, like 30 minutes later, say, hey, did you get it? He said, no, I haven't checked my phone. I'll let you know. Like, okay. And I started getting nervous. So I opened up Venmo, and I swipe over to the guy's profile, Tom, whatever, and I look at all his Venmo public uh, transactions, and it's like $25 for weed, uh, uh, $19 for drinks. And I'm like, my friend Tom is a conservative chap from the Midwest, <laughs> I feel like maybe he doesn't sell people weed, but maybe he's, uh, may- maybe he's just like joking about something and really it's like, you know, tech stock information or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, so finally my friend Tom texts me back, hey, I still haven't gotten it. And I realized something. 
I have sent $200 to the wrong person on Venmo. Yeah. There's a little bit of panic, needless to say, in the Hankins household, right? Anybody ever had a mistake like that? You know what I'm saying? You think you're doing the right thing, and then you have that ball drop moment, dum, 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 I'm doing the wrong thing. Oh my goodness, I was just like, oh, I, I messaged the guy, I was like, hey man, sorry about that check, could you kindly return the $200 to me? No response, right? <laughs> so I sent him a request and was like, hey, I'm going to request $200 from you, no response. Meanwhile, I still have to send my friend $200, so now I'm out $400, and I'm going, oh my gosh, and so I had to get on the phone, call Venmo, and they're like, listen, yeah, it happens all the time, uh, and then they made me feel like I'm an idiot, like I'm really old, they're like, listen, sir, you need to send information based on an email address or a text number, right? Never just go on the username, sir, what are you, over 35? And I was like, yes, I am, I'm so sorry, as I'm chatting with this kind person at Venmo, right? But I had that moment, thought I was doing the right thing, ended up doing the wrong thing. And I had a ton of regret. Did I ever sound like you? You think you're doing the right thing only to realize you've been doing the wrong thing and you're filled with regret. Guys, I want us, people who are part of the table, this family here, to be the kind of people who don't waste their lives doing the wrong thing. I'd love for you to spend your lives boldly and intentionally doing the right thing. And I have observed that among young adults, especially in Orlando and especially in our fellowship, we are caught up in something we think is the right thing. And I'm here to tell you today with a few more years of experience that it may not be the right thing. You may actually be headed towards the wrong thing. And I think there's the right thing that's available. And if you could just learn it right now, I really think God could take your life to a whole other level. Let me tell you what I mean by this. Um, a few weeks ago, I was uh, in West Texas. My friend turned 40, had his birthday party, did this kind of big thing, kind of in, you know, if you guys ever watched Friday Night Lights, right? That's where I was. I was in Friday Night Lights hometown. Uh, I just had this big birthday party, a bunch of ex-football players kind of in this little room, and we're having the 40th birthday party. I went to go hang out with my friends. I'm there with him. I'm supporting him. I'm at the table with him, and he just looks at me at one moment. And he goes, you know what, man? I know I'm turning 40, but I still don't know if I can answer the question. And I said, what question? He said, I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. And I was like, you're a successful entrepreneur, right? You have like 14 cars and two homes, and uh, you make a really good living. You go to Vegas whenever you want. You play golf like four times a day. You're a member of several country clubs. You're really successful as an entrepreneur. And he said, yeah, man but I just still don't know if I'm happy with what I'm doing. And when I talk to young people all the time, I hear this, I don't know what I wanna do when I grow up. And I wanna give you the advice that I gave to my friend because I think it's something that you guys might wanna learn. See, most of us, as we've grown up through the educational process, especially in America, from the time we're young, what our teachers and educators tell us is, they ask us this question, what do you want to do when you grow up, right? You guys heard that? Like, oh, wow, you're really good at math. You should be an accountant, right? Uh, oh, wow, you're really good at sports. You should be an athlete. Oh, wow, you're really good at uh, English. You should be an English teacher, right? Uh, they, they, they tell us 
that the main metric by which we should evaluate ourselves is this, what do I want to do when I grow up? And we come to understand through that not-so-subtle process that if we'll just discover what it is that we need to do with our lives, then we will be happy. And my friend is there as a 40-year-old telling me, I know what I want to do with my life, and I'm still not happy. So maybe I'm not doing what I should be doing with my lives. And I said to him this, the thing I will say to you, because God said it to me at some point, someone, uh, God inspired someone to say this to me at some point. It's this, maybe the question isn't, what do I want to do when I grow up? Maybe the right question is, who does God want me to be when I grow up? I want you to just consider this for a second, just this tension between doing and being, because I'm convinced that if you spend your life wholly focused on what you're going to do, you're going to end up unhappy. But if instead you will focus on who God wants you to be, you will find satisfaction and joy in that abundant life that God promises. And so I just want you to consider this kind of basic engineering of life here. It's this principle you guys can understand. It's this, working, doing, stresses us. Anybody in here ever stressed? Uh-huh, yeah, some of you are like, I'm stressed right now. I'm stressed right now, and that latte didn't help. Just the caffeine jacked me up. I'm just to be real honest with you. I was hanging out with some young adults at my house on Sunday night, and we went around the room. We said, how are you guys doing? And almost every one of them was like, I'm so stressed. I'm so tired, right? Working, expending effort, focusing on doing, it stresses us. When you work, when you work out, you get tired. When you go to work, you come home, you're tired. Working makes us tired. It stresses us. On the other hand, though, Being, existing, it satisfies us. Being or existing satisfies us. Any of you guys ever been on a beach for like a day where you just turn the cell phone off? You sit on the beach and you look at the dolphins, like jump in the bay. You're like, cool, this is awesome. You know, you're you know sipping on a cold beverage that's not alcoholic, right? Uh, Because you're a Christian Um, and. You know, the sun's hitting your body, and you're just like, oh, you get too hot, you go into the water, and you come back, there's no agenda, you sit down, you got the little umbrella, right, you're just, mm. you're doing nothing, you're just existing, and when you're driving home, you call your friend, because you can't text and drive, but you call your friend, you have the, you know, special earbuds in so that you can focus, 10 and 2, as you're going down the road, having this conversation, away from the beach, and you're like, man, I'm just so deeply satisfied, I wish I could go to the beach every day. I know I can't because I got to work to earn a living, but if I had enough money and I didn't have to do anymore, you know what I would do? I would be at the beach and I would just be all day. Doing stresses us. Being satisfies us. And God tells us that the secret to the abundant life in Christ, the, the life that God has designed for you and for me and for all of your friends who are here, it is not the life of primarily doing, it's the life of primary, primarily being. We don't get that everlasting life by doing. That's why you can't be saved by good works. We get the everlasting quality kind of life by existing, by practicing being instead. In your Bibles, look with me in this. I'm going to show you how this principle works there in uh, Galatians 5, and 23. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to this church in Galatia, and he's getting to the end. He's already done the theology. He's now doing the practical stuff. He's just kind of got these one-off principles he's trying to teach them, and he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit. Now, pause. He's just said, the works of the flesh are these things, are all these really bad things that you do. So if you guys want to go back and read that, it's kind of a bummer, but it's kind of true about who we are. The works of the flesh are all these bad things, all these doing things that we do incorrectly. But 
The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then he says this, against such things there is no law. In other words, uh, if someone is practicing love, no civil magistrate's going to go like, wait a second, that guy is loving other people? Hold on for a second. I need to co-sponsor a bill. Where is the senator from North Carolina? Come here, listen. These people over here are loving people. Let's, uh, let's create this law, see if the president will sign it into, you know, into a effect. Let's create this bill, make it a law. And so we'll tell people, no more love, right? Or if you see people walking around, they're just so gentle to other people. They've got that, that old elderly couple smile. They're just confident and at peace. They're like, ah, right? There's no house of representative over here being like, I hate those old people. They're so gentle. Okay, let's go get a bill together and create a law so there's no more gentleness, right? No one is thinking no more peace, no more patience. Ugh. There's no law against these things. They are, they are a priori. They are self-evidently valuable things. And when human beings demonstrate these virtues or these characteristics, you don't have to create a law system against them or for them. They are just, they seem to be these things everyone agrees upon is great, Right? Everybody is in agreement that this is the best thing ever. It's like the Beatles. Everyone agrees it's just great music, okay? It's like the Jonas Brothers. It appears everybody agrees this is great music, except me, uh, right? Uh, th- these things, these things that we put in our shopping cart, the essential characteristics of life, there's no law against them. They're great things. They're things everybody aspires to. They're things everybody should aspire to. These are characteristics of being, of existing. These are fruits of the Spirit. I want you guys to notice four things about these fruits. All of them, or the fruit, singular, all of them. And here they are. Number one, this fruit is the essential character traits of Jesus. If you took the person of Jesus and said, let's boil him down to his nine essential character traits. If he was taking a strengths finder test, right, he would only have nine of them. And they would be in this order. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's his Clifton Strengths Finder. Like his Myers-Briggs is love, joy, it's, love, it's whatever the letters are. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He's got nine characters, nine letters in there, right? His Enneagram score, he's a nine, right? Uh, that's just how Jesus operates. It's these nine things. And so as we start to pattern our lives more and more after Jesus, what we can expect Paul tells us, is that we will begin to demonstrate these characteristics. Um, I, I want to admit something around here, and I want to apologize to you for being a little bit of a bad pastor in this. I, I think it's fair, because I'm someone who likes to do, that oftentimes when we talk about patterning our lives more and more after Jesus, we talk about things we can do to be like Jesus, to pattern our lives after Jesus, Right? We say, hey, you know what? If you'll live up in community or in a celebration with the Father, if you'll live in community with other believers, and if you'll live out in compassion on the world and the city of Orlando, then you'll pattern your lives more and more after Jesus. And this is true. But those are the pattern of doing things. And I think what Paul is telling us is that being, being is something that we should focus on primarily. If we can be the character, if we can exist as the character of Jesus, then our doing will flow out of that. So these are the essential characteristics of Jesus. Number two, this fruit is the result of a God-ordained process. It's the result of a God-ordained process. What do I mean by this? Well, uh, it means you can't do this on your own. Like if you remove God from this process, there's no way you're going to be a loving person. If you, can, if you remove God from the process, if you remove the Holy Spirit's active work from the process, there's no way you can have peace. 
There's no way you can have joy. There's no way you can have any of these things. God is the one behind this process. He provides the growth. He's the one who created the process. He's the one who invites you to join him and participate in this process. God's initiating and sustaining and bringing this all about. His invitation to us is to simply cooperate with him in this process. God initiates, we cooperate with him. God initiates the growth process, we cooperate with him. God initiates the bearing of this fruit, we cooperate with him in the way that we cultivate this character and this fruit in our lives. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, when we moved into our house, my wife was like, hey, we moved to Florida from Texas, right? And so we're, she's like, Florida, it's tropical. Oh, I can grow avocado trees and I can grow banana trees. Like she was ama- my wife loves gardening and things like that. So she just said, uh, this is cool. I'm gonna get a banana tree. So first thing we did is she bought a banana tree. I think she bought it, it was like a banana sh- sprout, uh, right? And she planted it in the ground and then it kind of grew like overnight, just grew into this banana tree. And she just was like, hey, man, pretty soon we're going to have our own bananas. This is amazing. So each day we would go out, we'd look at it, we'd pull weeds, we'd make sure everything was pristine and perfect, make sure the soil was ready. And it grew and it grew. And after like a year and a half, there was no fruit. So we're researching, Googling, how long does it take to bear fruit? And they said, yeah, you know, it should take between 18 months and two years. Okay, cool. So we got to the two-year point. Again, each day we're out there cultivating the garden, making sure it's ready. No fruit. So we go to the like official gardener type person guy and we're like, hey, we have this banana tree. It's been two years, no fruit. What's the deal? He said, well, give me a soil test. Okay, so we go and we get a soil test. We bring it back. He puts it in a lab, right? He goes in the back with the boys in the white suits or the coats or whatever. They're like, yeah, give us a second, right? And they do their little thing. Microscope's involved. They bring it back out. They say, hey, there's not enough acid in your soil. Here's this acidic potting soil. Go put it around, spread it around the base of your banana tree and you'll have fruit within, I don't know, six to eight weeks. And we're like, okay, cool. So we go do that. Every day we're checking it, we're checking it, we're checking it. Sure enough, eight weeks later, there's this little balloon of a banana blossom happening right there. And we're like, oh, cool, that's awesome. And first day, it just looks like this umbrella that's closed. And then the next day, it kind of opens. And then the little, like, finger things start to sprout out. And our kids are coming out. And we're like, oh, this is so cool. We're FaceTiming all our family. Look, we've grown bananas, right? It's just amazing. And then they grew longer and longer and bigger and bigger. And then finally, we had the day where it was harvest time. We knew it because the the banana little thing, all the bananas were like hanging, touching the ground. And we were like, if we don't cut those things down, there's like animals or something going to get this or something. I don't know. So I get on YouTube and I'm like, how to harvest bananas, right? And I just see these like Latin American buff men with machetes like, and I was like, yes. So I went to Home Depot and got a machete. I felt so manly. I came in, I I wore exactly what they wore in the YouTube videos, right? Uh, I went in and cut up. We had 24 bunches of bananas that grew. It was crazy. We had so many bananas. We had to like give it away to friends, right? We're like, listen, it's bananas. How many bananas we have? Like it's crazy, right? So everyone's coming over. Natalie's making banana pie and banana bread and banana cookies. And man, we were just giving away. It was incredible. Now, listen, that could happen to anybody who plants a banana tree. If you'll just cultivate it and listen to the experts and do what they say and wait the allotted time, a banana tree will produce bananas. It's guaranteed. And anybody who does this can experience that fruit. And this is what Paul's saying. This is a God-ordained process, but anybody who's following Jesus, who has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them, can see this fruit produced in your life. All we have to do is participate with God in cultivating it. That's number two. Number three. The fruit is primarily meant to satisfy us. 
Now, this is maybe the biggest aha for, I think, some of you who may have grown up in church here. I didn't grow up in church, but I became a Christian much later in life, and I would learn about the fruit of the Spirit, and it seemed to me that the fruit of the Spirit, these character traits and the little thing here, they were meant to be some form of social control, meaning if I began to demonstrate some of these characteristics, then other people would like me better, right? So if I was a loving person, then other people would like me better, and it was to my benefit. And if I was a kind person, other people would like me better. If I was a joyful person, other people would like me better, that somehow this fruit being born in my life was meant to be some kind of indication to everybody else. It's virtue signaling that I'm a good Christian. And so as I, I remember I was seeking to cultivate this fruit in my life, I just thought, okay, then other people are going to see this fruit. They're going to know I'm a Christian. They'll, they'll like lay off me and they won't be so judgmental towards me, right? So maybe if I bear fruit, all those like really judgmental Christians will go away from me, right? This is the way that I typically tended to think about that. And my suspicion is maybe some of you too think about that in that way. But The strange thing about this is, all Paul says is, this is fruit of the Spirit, very simply. And in an agrarian society, most people who are experiencing fruit are experiencing it in their own home, like my banana tree. And that fruit is meant primarily for us. And the fruit of the Spirit, as it begins to be cultivated in your life, I don't know if you know this, but God means it primarily for you. When God wants to produce love in your life, it's not so that others would see you as a loving person. It's so that you would experience the love of God and be satisfied. Like, it's just like this thing you pick up and you eat it and you're like, man, that love is amazing. Right? Do you guys remember the first time you felt and experienced love? Maybe this is love of a parent or maybe this is love of a boyfriend, girlfriend or a husband, wife or whatever their situation is, right? The first time you experienced it, there's like a love there. You're like, this is awesome, right? Uh, growing up, we called it like getting the tingles. You're like, oh, right? Uh, romantic love, first time you experience it, you're like, this is amazing. No one experiences romantic love and is like, this is for other people, not for me. <laughs> Everyone who experiences romantic love is like, how can I get more of that? Oh my goodness, goodness, I want more of this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, that stuff that's in our cart. God meant it to be fruit for our lives, that we would eat and enjoy of it, that when we cultivate peace in our life, that that peace would somehow help us out, that when we cultivate patience in our life, that would help us out, that we would enjoy being in Christ and be satisfied by the nutrients of that spiritual fruit. And because God is a good God, like my banana tree, he tends to give us more than we can handle, right? He gives us so much love, we're like, oh, and then we have to invite other people over to take some of that love, right? He makes us so at peace, we've got to invite more people to be around us to enjoy that peace bread, uh, right? We have so much patience, we have so much kindness, it's, it's ministering to us so much and we're so satisfied, we can't keep it all for ourselves, we've got to give it away. That fruit is primarily meant for us. And because God's generous and there are leftovers, he then gives us opportunity to give it away to everyone we meet. The fruit's essential. It's the essential character traits of Jesus. It's the result of a God-ordained process that anybody can jump in. It's primarily meant to satisfy us the way that fruit satisfies us. And finally, the fruit can be cultivated through the practice of abiding. I want you to look with me on the screen here for a cross-reference verse in John 15. Jesus is now talking. He says this. It's really interesting. He says, Abide in me, and I in you. 
As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Abiding in Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, really digging into your relationship with God is what produces the fruit. And so today, if you're someone who's hearing about this fruit in this basket and you go, you know what, I think I want some of those characteristics in my life, then I want to just spend the rest of our time talking practically about what it looks like to abide in Jesus. Now, you maybe never thought about that word abide before, but essentially it's the word remain. Um, And you can kind of think about this. In in America in the 1800s, there are all these cowboys. Have you seen these Western movies or heard about it, right? Like cowboys would go into towns, there'd be like shootouts and there'd be dusty roads. Uh, And so Typically what happens is a bat, bad guys would come to town. You know they're bad guys because they're wearing black. There's the black hat guy, right? And all the good guys have the sheriff's badges, right, going around. I'm from Texas, so this is how I grew up. Some of you are like, this is odd. I'm from Texas. Anyway, uh, so right, the, the, the good guys would come in, clink, 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 and they'd shoot the bad guys. And the bad guys, there'd be this, you know, skirmish. And because there's a skirmish and they're moving around, all the dust would kick into the air. People would run into the saloon or the hotel or whatever, or the bank or the hair cuttery place. And they would hide and cower as the windows are getting shot out. Dust is in the air. You can't see what's going on. And then finally, the dust would settle. And the bad guy would be on the ground and the good guy would be like, <laughs> I'm the winner, right? Right? Yeehaw, or whatever happens, right? And in that town, the dust would settle And they would look around and they'd be like, all right, who remains in this town? These are the people who are going to help us rebuild this place, right? It's the people that remained, the faithful ones. Those are the the core of that town who kept that town going on. Well, this is the same idea of abiding. It's the people who in the dust of the trials of life settles down. When you stop getting tossed and turned by the waves of the sea, it's the people who are still there remaining in Jesus, Something bad comes in and it's really hard and makes you cry and you're really upset. But on the other side of it, as you come out of that storm, you look at Jesus, you're like, I'm still with you, cowboy. Me and you, we are going to do this thing. Right? You have a bad week, a bad month, a bad stretch. Your friends are having problems. Your family's having problems. And you come out the other side of that and the dust settles and you still remain in Jesus. And that whole time the dust was in the air, you were remaining in Jesus. And even when God wasn't talking back to you, you remained in Jesus. This is this idea of abiding. And as I was thinking about how to practically drive this idea from the ethereal down to the practical, uh, I thought about just doing uh, an acrostic of abide. These would be the practices of someone who regularly abides. And so maybe if you're the note-taking type, you want to write this down. Here's how you, I think, can abide more in Jesus and cultivate this kind of fruit in your lives. And we're going to each week, hopefully, try to bring some new spiritual practices to the table to help you guys understand what abiding might look like. And so this is just my acrostic. It's not Jesus' acrostic, but you can think about it, right? So here we go. To abide. What might it look like to abide? you can practice these five things. Number one, the A, practice awareness of my being. Awareness, you can practice awareness. To abide in Jesus, it's gonna require you at some point to just stop and go, how am I doing? Mentally, how am I doing? Physically, how am I doing? Spiritually, how am I doing? Okay, emotionally, how am I doing? Right, okay. What's going on around me? What's going on 10 feet around me? What's going on 20 feet around me? A mile around me? How's my environment? How are the people in my life? I just need to just practice awareness. I need to slow down and just see 
what's going on. Are you aware that a lot of us, uh, most of the day, we walk around so tense because we're stressed from doing? And if we were just to stop and go, how am I doing? We would realize we're really stressed. Every muscle in our body is clenched up. That's why it's hard for us to talk sometimes. We're just like, ah, right? We're like, uh, you know, these power lifters at a, uh, you know, one of those events with our shirts off. Like, oh, look at all my muscles popping. Our veins are coming. And all of our friends are telling us all the time, like we're pushing off secondhand smoke. Bro, are you okay? And we're like, I'm fine. Why would you ask such a question? I'm putting, because you don't look okay. Why would you say that? Oh, I can't believe you. We're no longer friends. I'm unfriending you. Boom, right? Uh, You're just, yeah. And if we would just stop and go, how am I doing? We would realize we are clenching everything in our body. And we would relax and go, okay, wait, why am I stressed? Well, I'm stressed because I don't like my work. Well, why don't I like my work? Because I have this really terrible boss and I'm angry with him. Well, why are you angry with him? Because this work is not satisfying me in the way I thought it would. Okay, well, that's okay. But just be aware of that. And how am I thinking? I'm really foggy and fuzzy right now. Why am I foggy and fuzzy? Because I'm not getting enough sleep. Okay, so what can I do? I can get more sleep, but that means I can't watch Hulu. Okay, we'll turn Hulu off. Oh, what are you, my mom, Doug? Oh, right? Practicing awareness is gonna get us to stop continuing on in this rat race and slow down enough to see if Jesus might speak to us and tell us the thing we need to hear so we can get to where he needs us to be. Practice awareness of my being. Number two, you can begin batching your tasks. You guys ever heard about batching? Have you all seen this? Uh, In kind of life engineering, batching is this idea of organizing your schedule uh, in such a way that you maximize your ability to concentrate. And what social scientists and behavioral scientists have discovered is that human beings have maximum concentration for 25 minutes. 25 minutes. And so for 25 minutes, you can concentrate. And what batching experts tell you is that in your workflow of your day, you ought to operate in 25-minute segments with five-minute breaks. And so 8 to 8.25, you should work, and you should take a five-minute break. And then you go, hey, Siri, set a timer for 25 minutes. And then you go for another 25 minutes, you take a five-minute break. And you go for 25 minutes, you take another five-minute break. You go for 25 minutes, you take another five-minute break. And after you've gone for two hours, which is four intervals of this, You then take a longer break, and then you start over again. And if we will work in 25-minute intervals with five-minute breaks, we will be exponentially more productive in our days and able to concentrate more in our days and get more done in our days. And not only that, you should batch very specific tasks in those 25-minute blocks. So if you have email to do, Don't just stop during the day and do email as you go. Do email for 25 minutes and get rid of it and get your inbox down to zero and move on to a different task. If you're going to text, take a 25-minute block to text people and then turn it off and stop texting. If you're going to look at social media, take 25 minutes to look at social media, post all the stuff, like all the stuff, research all the stuff, cry over that guy who's dating that one girl and you thought he was for you stuff, right, for 25 minutes, then turn it off and then move on, right? 25-minute blocks. Here's why this is important for abiding, If you're someone who's going to have a regular devotional time or quiet time, you may come in today and go, I need to go read the Bible for two hours because that's what Jesus would do, which I'm not sure that's what Jesus would do, but still, maybe that's what you think Jesus would do. Okay, if you're going to do that, do it in 25-minute blocks. In fact, I would recommend this. If you're going to have a quiet time, make it 25 minutes long. Set a timer, and 25 minutes, be done with it. Because you can concentrate on hearing from God, from God for 25 minutes and then you're going to need a break. 
Why? Because you're a human being and you're limited. You're not perfect yet. And so expecting yourself to be able to just dial in like a monk, like a monastic monk, and just be like, I've been sitting here for four hours praying and it's felt like 10 minutes, right? Some of you might be able to do that. You might be super Christians, right? I can't do that. Most of my friends can't do that. So I wanna recommend to you to think about your day, think about your spiritual life in 25-minute increments, batch things, okay? Number one, assess. Number two, uh, or uh, practice awareness. Number two, practice batching your tasks. Number three, increase in your life margin. We've gotta be people who create the time we need to do things. And so that's gonna mean setting a budget for your day, You're going to have to be intentional about practicing awareness and cultivating these things in your life. So I think it's incredibly important to figure out if you're a morning, noon, night kind of person, when you're going to do your 25-minute awareness time, your 25-minute spiritual time, your 25-minute practice and prayer, whatever you do, Bible, whatever, right? But you're going to need to create margin. It's not just going to happen. You are not going to passively abide. You're not going to accidentally abide. You're going to have to be intentional about structuring your day, budgeting your time so that you can create margin and space for you to sit down for 25 minutes and concentrate on what Jesus might want to say to you. Again, it's not going to happen accidentally. You aren't just going to be going through your day like, man, you know, I'm crushing my day, right? Got that batching thing down. Uh, went to lunch at Chipotle, killer, right? Super good. Came home, man, just, you know, just talked to my roommate. Was like, had a really good conversation. And all of a sudden, this burning bush appeared in my living room and said, Doug, sit thyself down and open thy word and I will speak to thee. Like, cool, Jesus, this is awesome. And you just sit down and he's like, here are the four things you need to do this week. Awesome, right? There, there's no kind of accidental, convenient way you're gonna do this. You're gonna have to create time, create margin, and sit yourself down in your block and listen. You're going to have to create margin. Number, so practice awareness, batch your tasks, increase life margin. Number four, disconnect from tech. Shut the laptop. Turn off the TV. Turn the phone off. Take off your Apple watch. Put the video game controller down. Uh, right? You don't have to move to a remote village where there's no Wi-Fi, but you do need to turn off tech. You've got to disconnect. If you are going to hear from God, if you're going to connect to God, I'm just saying, if you're going to connect to God, you can't be simultaneously connected to the whole world of social media and hope that that just happens in a multitasking kind of way. Like, hey, God, I want to hear from you. Hold on one second. Okay, cool. Yes, God, I'm listening. Wait, hold on. I got a ding over here. Okay, what was that? Yeah. All right, cool. I'm in. That show's on Netflix really now? I got you in five minutes, God. Hold on, just like, okay, okay, let's watch the trailer. Oh, it's so good, okay. God, I'm ready for you. Ooh, uh, okay, uh, I'll call them back. Okay, yeah, God, I'm listening. Like, imagine if you were sitting at a, a conversation with a friend or you were on a date and that's the way they treated you, right? You're trying to connect. Like, so tell me about yourself. You know, it's a really funny story. Hold that thought. Hey, what's up, girl? Yeah, okay. So uh, I was born in, you know, just a random, hold on for a second, right? You'd be like, I'm Ubering right now away from here. This person is a loser, right? Now, God doesn't think you're a loser, but he is sitting there like, I'm ready to share the secrets of the universe with you. If you could like maybe just turn everything off and focus on me, I'm gonna give you everything you need. You can't connect with God if you're connected to everybody else. So disconnect for a 25-minute period that you scheduled in your day and listen, you never know. God might say something to you, and it might change your life. But you got to disconnect. Finally, 
evaluate your process. Practice evaluating your process. Open a journal, get a pad, do something, and just go, hey, what am I hearing? What's God telling me? What's the last time I heard him say something? Let me just spend some time thinking through things. I did this the other night. Uh, In fact, last night I had problems going to sleep, and so I was laying there, and I do this little game where I try to remember the layout of every house I've lived in. Like I try to remember where my room was in relation to my parents' room and I build a mental image and I remember what it's like going into my room. I, I moved a lot growing up. We lived in like seven houses before I was 18, maybe eight houses. Uh, and I remember them all. And so I just practiced just kind of remembering where I was and where God was and when he entered my life and what that was like and what it was like to have a quiet time in my room and that thing or what it was like to pray at that kitchen table or what it was like to have that fight with my dad in this area or what it was like to have that fight with my mom in this area. And I just remember all of those things so I can kind of remember where I am right now. And I can evaluate the way God has been working in my life. Now, I'm not saying you have to do this. This is just a weird thing I like to do. I find it very calming. I'm a weirdo. But uh, for me, it's an important aspect of me trying to remember the story that God has me in. What's that look like for you? What would it look like for you to, on the regular, just evaluate where you are in your life? Something amazing might happen as you pull out the legal pad or the journal or whatever it is for you to evaluate. God might reveal something to you. And you might have an aha. He might speak to you the very thing that you need in life to get you where he needs you to be. But you're going to have to regularly practice awareness. And you're going to have to budget your time. And you're going to have to batch yourself and, and pick times that make sense for your concentration level. And you're going to have to listen and you're going to have to disconnect. And it would be really, really helpful for you to evaluate, maybe even to journal that experience. And that's how you, that's just one way, what, what it might look like for you to abide. And if you can get good at cultivating this kind of practice in your life, if you can regularly abide in Jesus in this kind of way or a way that's very similar to that, what God says he's going to do as a promise is he's going to bear this kind of fruit in your life. And that fruit is going to be good for your soul. And it's probably going to be more than you can eat on your own. And he's going to bring other people around you, the community you're looking for, to enjoy the fruit of his work in you. We call that ministry. Let me tell you a cool story to kind of wrap all this up. Uh, I was thinking about the time I had that aha where I moved from thinking about doing to thinking about being. And I'm not actually proud of this story. So this is a story that I'm going to tell you in which case I was an idiot. So you guys ready for this? Like I was a really big idiot. And I'm going to tell it and some of you guys are going to be like, oh, right. So just be prepared to judge me. Um, So uh, when I was a young pastor, my first church after PhD work, uh, I, my first job was in this, uh, my home church, uh, this church called Highland in Waco, Texas. And I grew up there as a college student and I was part of the young adult ministry there. And I remember being a young adult and my wife and I were involved in ministry and I just kind of coveted it in my heart between um, Uh, coveted in my heart between me and God, uh, hey, I would love to be senior pastor of this church one day. That's my career path. So I go to seminary and I go do a PhD and I write a couple books and I come back and uh, you guys heard this story. I grew up there. I was a kind of college student there. And so I remember the day I got my PhD, the the, uh, thing came in the mail, the like diploma situation. And I walked around to our bookkeeper who's named Miss Faye. And I said, look, Miss Faye, Miss Faye is like 
75 years old at this point, right? Uh, I'm like, hey, look, Miss Faye, I got my diploma. I'm now Dr. Doug, right? And I'm thinking she's gonna go, well done, Dr. Hankins. I'm so proud of you. You have finally made it. You are the, you know, winner of American Idol or whatever, right? I just thought there was gonna be some moment she gives me the rose. Yes, you were the one. Just, I don't know. I thought it was gonna be really magical. Like I've arrived and everyone looked at me differently. And she looks at me and she goes, oh, Dr. Dougie Poo. <laughs> and she tussles my hair and like sends me on my way. And uh, that was my first uh, kind of indication that maybe I had not arrived in this particular organization. Well, um, so I'm working and I'm trying to do all the right things. I'm, uh, you know, they give me opportunities to speak and I'm, I'm doing these pretty good sermons and uh, it was the early days of the web and so they had like the like count on the sermon videos that people would watch. And so we posted all of our sermons uh, up there and I remember I looked one day, I was like, oh, the sermon's up there. And so you could rank the sermons by views. And so I just was like, cool, I wonder what this is. And I hit it, and mine were like seven of the top ten uh, in terms of likes and views and all this stuff. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm like really making an impact here. So I'm thinking, okay, this is awesome. Now, keep in mind, the senior pastor at the time who's about to retire, he had told me when, he, when I came on staff, Doug, there's a really good chance you could be the next senior pastor here. And I was like, awesome, this is awesome. So I had this expectation, this is what was going to happen. So I'm doing all the things, I'm going to all the meetings, I'm preaching the sermons, I'm leading the Bible studies, I'm meeting with the deacons, I'm developing leaders, I have all this internship program, I'm handing interns off to the church, they're doing incredible things, I'm leading mission trips to Africa, I'm doing all the things that I should do to be put in position to be considered to be the next senior pastor of this church that I love so much. And I remember we started going through this process, our pastor retired, we had a search team, we're going through this deal, and um, it was me. And it was a couple other people, but one of the people who was in running with me uh, was the guy who was my mentor in life. And he was still on staff there. And I remember there was this point where we, we went from being like he was the mentor and I was the mentee to we were colleagues to now we're competitors. And it was really awkward. It was really awkward. And it was made more awkward by things that I did. So let me tell you about these things. <laughs> so... Um, both of us had some pluses and some minuses. I was very aware of his minuses, having worked for him, having kind of been around him. And so I started having pretty regular conversation with other people about these minuses. Yeah. And I'm going, man, I'm always expressing it in terms of concern because this is what Christians do, right? I'm just really concerned because, you know, if he's a senior pastor, then you, these are the kind of things that could happen and da-da-da-da. And... Uh, I, I know how to cultivate a narrative campaign. And so I'm getting it going, right? Okay. And I'm just, I'm making sure the right people are aware of things. And I'm, you know, kind of controlling the narrative and doing all these things. And eventually we get to this point in the process where he's no longer considered a candidate. And I remember the day he got the news and everyone was like, oh man, I'm really bummed. They're kind of moving on. But I was like, ah, I've kind of narrowed the field. It's like me and another dude and here we go. And like, I knew I was one of the final couple of candidates. I was like, yeah, this is going to work, whatever. And we get to this point, uh, one of my elders at the church at the time goes, hey, let's go to Chili's. I'm like, cool. And so we go to Chili's and he sits me down. And he's like, we're not going to consider you for being senior pastor. And I went, What? I was like, but the sermons and the likes and the mission trips to Africa and the deacons meetings and the interns, like, tell me, you got to give me an answer. Like, what's going on? And he was like, listen, I just think you're too young. And I just think that you're not the guy for us. And I was devastated. But I was very thankful that he told me that this was no longer the case. 
And so I went home, Natalie and I talked about it, we prayed about it, and we just said, okay, maybe God has something more for us. And I just remember in that season, for the first time, I stopped doing all these things. I said, well, if they're not going to consider me anymore, I don't have to do all these things I was trying to do for them to like me and, you know, want to consider me and all this stuff. And so instead, I spent some time uh, in the word, spent some time in prayer, spent some time, pulled back, go to my office, shut the door, just listen to the Holy Spirit. Things I hadn't done in months, just listening. God, what is it you want to say to me? Because I thought this was it, but maybe I missed it. What do you want to say? And I remember in that time, it was like the first time in a long time I started cultivating things of being in my life. And one of the first things God did is he started to cultivate patience in me and show me how impatient I had been in trying to strive towards that career path that I wanted for myself. And as I came into experience and eat of that fruit of patience in my life, it's like my eyes got opened and my heart got still, and my soul got calm. And I could look back and evaluate. I was aware for the first time of what was going on in me, how tense I was and how stressed I was. And I could look back and see all the ways I displayed very poor character in that process. And God started talking to me in the midst of that patience that I was eating the fruit of that experience of cultivation. And the thing God told me most out of all of that was, Doug, you've been a jerk to your friend who is your mentor in this thing. And you know what you did. And now you need to go make it right with him. Blessed are the peacemakers, Doug. It's time for you to go make peace. And I was like, oh God, I love you, but oh God, this is hard. But oh my God, this is so hard. Like, okay, God, you've cultivated patience in me. I'm really nervous about this. And so I'm gonna need you, God, in this moment to cultivate peace. Cause you said it's love and joy and peace and patience. And I don't have the peace. I'm gonna need that peace right now. And so a few months went by and I was closing my door, locking it meditating, listening, reading scripture, singing psalms, singing hymns, journaling, processing, thinking about awareness in my life, carving out that space, abiding, 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 abiding. And eventually I got to this one day where I had peace that I knew no matter what was gonna happen in this conversation with my friend, that God was gonna take care of me. And so I called him up we met at a Starbucks and I sat down and I look across the table and I was strong for about three seconds. And I looked him in the eye and I said, I'm so sorry. I think I sabotaged your candidacy by my gossip, and by my slander, and by all the poor character in my life. And I need to ask your forgiveness. And my former mentor, my friend, the man who is leading at my wedding, looks at me across the table and is blindsided by all and then he collects himself and he says, Doug, I forgive you. I'm hurt by this, but I forgive you. And I think we can move on from this. And I said, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Because I feel terrible. And he said, well, don't feel terrible, but it means we do have some things we need to work on. And over the next decade of my life, our text messages and our phone calls have been working to restore what we used to have, but we lost because of my poor character. But don't miss this. If I hadn't sat down and obeyed the process that God gave to me of abiding, if I hadn't responded and corresponded to that thing that God set up, that process of tilling and planting and watering and 
all that stuff of abiding, if I hadn't carved out time in my schedule, if I hadn't practiced awareness, if I hadn't journaled and evaluated, if I hadn't done those things, then it's very possible God might not have given me the patience to slow down and think about everything else. And he might not have given me the peace and cultivated that fruit in my life so that I could have that moment of reconciliation. And he might not have from all that helped me to increase in love and in joy and in kindness and in gentleness and in self-control. The things you need in this life is not more doing, young friends. The things that you need in this life is more being. And the being that you need are the nine fruit of the Spirit that Jesus wants to put into your life so that you can enjoy it and be satisfied and be satisfied. Let me pray for us.